Welcome to Debased, a show about the current state of money with Jeff Dunst. Uh, Our topic today is, of course, the economy as always, but a little broader in the sense of Bidenomics. I wanted to start out and... uh, um, we'll, we'll get to Vance and EJ and some others, but uh, I saw uh, pretty funny last night on MSNBC that I, I'm just going to say the execrable Nicole Wallace, who in my eyes is just a shill for everything bad, uh, basically had a panel of sycophants who were talking about how uh, Biden needs to run on his economy, that there's a Bidenomics, there's a surge in the U.S. economy, a boom in large scale infrastructure, a strong and resilient Bidenomics in action. His economic agenda is a real accomplishment. It really is mourning in America right now. So I saw this and I'm like, well, that absolutely uh, does not uh, comport with what most of us are seeing and feeling in the economy, which is a lot of unease. And, you know, to the extent there is still froth. It sure feels like it's coming off the fiscal and monetary stimulus of the COVID period and that uh, there's a lot of danger signs, a lot of warning signs, everything from a deeply inverted yield curve, and we'll get to that, uh, to the number of jobs which are actually part-time being created to all kinds of other factors. But to be fair, let me just be devil's advocate here. I mean, we have uh, the uh, erudite Nicole Wallace, you, you know, you have Jerome Powell at his FOMC meeting earlier this week saying, look, we don't we don't uh, forecast a recession any longer. Obviously, the S&P and other market indices had a, an absolutely great first six months, uh, the first half of the year. GDP is up an unexpected 2.4 percent for Q2. Uh, inflation has come down, allegedly, depends on how you uh, uh, measure it, of course, the PCE is a little different number, but CPI has come down from all, you know, all the way up in the eights down into the threes, in part, I think, aided by oil, which has fallen, uh, which, which fell for mu- much of the year, but it's starting to creep back up. Um, and I think is now back at 80 after being down in the 60s. In, the, in, the, in 2020, during COVID, oil was all the way down at you know, $24 a barrel or something. I mean, they couldn't even sell the stuff. So you put all this in a blender, and um, Joe Biden, who I, I'm not sure is going to be the uh, 2024 Democratic nominee, but he certainly you know, is the most likely person to be that. I mean, um, EJ, I know you've been pretty critical of this, and you on your Twitter, you run a lot of... I won't say naysaying charts, but charts that that examine some of this data a little deeper and and take some of the uh, you know to, you know it, it's not as rosy as projected. So uh, what let me let me ask you: What's your definition of Bidenomics, and are things worse than uh, Nicole Wallace land? Ooh, defining Bidenomics—that's a good one. Um, I would say taxing, spending, and printing of money by the government. That, that is probably the most uh, succinct definition I think I can give. Uh, in, in terms of, of how rosy things look, I, I, just, I just don't see it, quite frankly. As soon as you start uh, opening up these, these different uh, data releases and you start looking under the hood, you realize that things are not actually that great. Um, you know, 2.4%, we would, if I can borrow a phrase from the miniseries Chernobyl, you know, it's not great, not terrible, during normal times at least. But when we have an environment like today where 
uh, interest on the debt is going through the roof. I mean, we're we're almost at a trillion dollars a month annualized in terms of what the Treasury is having to shell out just to service existing debt. And that debt is growing. Uh, That's not a good environment especially when interest rates are rising. And so you need a lot of growth to overcome that so that you can eventually start winding down that that deficit and therefore debt. And we're nowhere near there yet. We, we need to basically double growth to put us on the right path. Um, so, so we have that to look at. Another question then would be, why is it that growth is not that great? And a lot of that has to do with the fact uh, that investment has has been declining. Now, we did see a bump this last quarter. But if you look at over the last year, we are way down. We're down more than 3%. And, and that's just gross investment not net. So when you throw uh, you know, depreciation in on top of that, you have a recipe for a declining capital stock. And, and that's really, really not a good thing because it's that capital stock that allows us uh, to, to fuel future economic growth. So we, we don't really see a lot, of, a lot of positives in this report. We see consumer spending uh, being fueled by, uh, by credit, for example. You know, you were just talking about uh, when did it become the norm uh, that people would, would purchase a car, a depreciating asset that was more than, than their annual incomes? I mean, I don't know. I, I suppose it became the norm when the Federal Reserve made uh, zero interest rates the norm. But, you, you know, that's, I suppose, another discussion. The point is that uh, consumption right now is anemic, but it's still being fueled entirely, almost entirely by credit. And as bad as it is, as bad as that uh, growth in consumption is, it's literally outpaced by government. It's outpaced by, in other words, what, what that essentially means is that the government is getting to spend more uh, than you are, or I, I should say gov- the growth in government spending is, is faster than the growth in your own spending. Um, but then there are other components like uh, net exports, for example, which is always very, very tricky how that adds to GDP, because the export portion obviously increases GDP and the import portion reduces it. But as international trade slows down, which it has been for a while now, as it slows down, uh, imports and exports have been slowing at different rates during different quarters. And in this last quarter, largely because Americans are demonstrably poorer, we've been buying fewer imports. And as a result of that, it's artificially causing that GDP number to go up. That's just how the math works. And for example, the contribution from imports actually exceeded the contribution from personal consumption expenditures. In other words, what, what you and I are, are spending. So, again, the idea that somehow this was a a blockbuster report, as some people in the media are claiming, I just don't see that. I see exactly the opposite. And yes, inflation has come down. And yes, that's wonderful. uh, But it is still much hotter than than the Fed's 2% target. And even that target is silly, right? The target should be zero. Again, that's for another discussion. But inflation is still running way too hot. And very troubling is that it has not been trending down towards 2%. It's been trending towards 3%. And now that we're there, there's really no indication that it's going lower. Do you think that uh, 3% is the new 2%? Is that the new baseline? I I think so. Absolutely. It it seems like... uh, 
I don't know if it's we have we have shorter memories these days or what, but it certainly seems like three uh, percent after living through nine percent. This has become acceptable to the American people, unfortunately, um, just as two percent became acceptable, you know, a- after the, the spike in inflation that preceded that decision. So, you know, I I. I I am very, very sad to say that that yes, I, I think three percent is the new normal. You know, and it, it makes sense when when government is going to spend, borrow, and print roughly fifty percent more today than it was before the pandemic. It makes sense that inflation would be fifty percent worse. And when you say Americans are poor, you mean on a balance sheet basis, individuals, households, relative to let's say before COVID. Well, there's that's a great question. There's a couple of different ways we could measure it, right? You can talk about uh, wages relative to purchasing power, right? Real wages, that's obviously way down. Um, you can talk about uh, the household balance sheet, and we can look at how much debt people are in versus their, their disposable income. In other words, their, their after-tax income. And just about any way you want to measure it, people have become worse off. But I, I think it's, it, it can get kind of tricky to measure these things. And that's where I think we see this huge discrepancy right now between hard and soft data, where the hard data, things like the GDP report we just got, uh, look a lot better than the soft data, which is when you start asking people, how do you feel about your current economic condition? How do you feel about your prospects of getting a better job, getting a better raise, your ability to move, right? Things like that. And, and so because of that, I, I think you are, you are seeing this, this huge divergence where the, the again the headline number is not actually capturing how people are are feeling right now as anemic as the growth in in consumer spending was for example as soon as you adjust that for population you find out that that it's even worse because uh the population has literally been growing faster than that rate of of personal consumption has so you're you're not even at two percent personal consumption growth on a per capita basis. And that's when it's being fueled almost entirely by credit. In other words, I'm I'm able to buy more stuff, but I'm having to go into debt to do it. I mean, that's a path to insolvency. Yeah, well, consumption in America has been fueled by credit, arguably, for a few decades now. But what's different is it didn't used to be at 8%, right? It was at 1% or 2%, and then, you know, put on a couple points if you're subprime or something. But um, you know, this idea that prosperity is just achieved through spending, which I think is basically the left's economic project. I think if we had to describe the left's economic project in a nutshell, it's that uh, wealth is unlimited and government just needs to redistribute it better. And that means spend money. They don't have any conception of Say's law that, that production, being productive is how you create demand because then people are producing. They have an income as a result of that producing a good or service for the economy. And then that's how we get demand. And so the idea that when you uh, raise interest rates and potentially that uh, spikes unemployment a little bit, you know, you're killing supply. Um, so reducing supply is not a, a, a way to quell inflation, you know, quite the opposite. So we have all these sort of um, discrepancies in the narrative, so to speak. But again, you know, when I look around um, relatively modest college town of Auburn, Alabama. I mean, you know, I see new Ford F-150 pickup trucks everywhere. And these are, these, a lot of these are well north of that $50,000 I mentioned earlier. So yes, I can go out and get a credit card, even at, you know, some ungodly rate and go buy 
big screen TVs or something. And, and I mean, that's, that, that's economic activity, that's GDP, and that might give my neighbors the appearance of prosperity. But at some point, presumably, I have to make at least minimum payments on those credit cards. So I, I, I feel like there's a, a, a serious unease in America and that those of us who are interested in economics, those of us who are interested in uh, free markets are, are doing a bad job of sort of explaining the unseen to people. In other words, the scene is easy. Government spends money, it builds some housing project or something like that, that's seen. But the unseen is all of the, you know, broadly speaking, economic opportunity costs um, and, and all of the savings foregone uh, because, you know, uh, all the bad incentives of an inflationary environment. But I wanted to get to our, our speaker, Vance, again, he's, he hasn't been with us before, but he is a, an economist. He's been in a few different think tanks, including Texas Public Policy Foundation, with which I'm very familiar with. EJ spent some time there as well. But also, interestingly, and I hope he'll touch on this, uh, Vance, you were at OMB. Um, and so that must have been quite an experience. I know way back when David Stockman was the director of OMB back in the 80s, and he was saying, holy smokes. Look at these entitlements. We're spending too much. And that, uh, you, that, that all sounds pretty quaint today. Yeah, it does. And it's a pleasure to be with you today um, and have EJ on as well and everybody. It's, it's good to be with you all. Yeah, it was, it was a great experience. I was there for about a year from June 2019 to May of 2020. So wrote the president's, helped write the president's last budget, uh, President Trump. And then, you know, COVID hit and everything else and found myself in the situation room having those types of discussions about what's this going to do to the economy and and everything else, and not good, <laughs> not good things, especially when everything started going downhill and shutdowns, unfortunately, happened. Um, it was interesting, though, you know, let's talk about Bidenomics. I was just looking at this tweet that President Biden had yesterday. My predecessor presided over historic job losses. Thanks to Bidenomics, we've presided over historic job growth. And, and, and my kind of quote tweet to him uh, was, what would you have done differently during the COVID pandemic, which is when there were substantial job losses, which were coming back at a brisk pace before you took office, right? <laughs> it, it, I mean, there was really the declines, I think. Um, it, it, but it was an extraordinary time at OMB. Um, Larry Kudlow and Art Laffer also had the position I had, which was chief economist of the Office of Management and Budget. Art Laffer had it in 1971. He was the first person with that position in the, in the Nixon administration. Um, and, then, and then Larry Kudlow had it in 81 in the Reagan administration. So some, some good company uh, to, to be in. And it was an extraordinary experience. But I, I think, you know, I would just echo a lot of what EJ said. I think the only other thing that I might add in there was, um, yes, you have the deficit spending under Bidenomics. You've got the high taxes. Um, but the, and the, the regulations, I think, have just been um, uh, critical to the economic growth, the prosperity of our country. Um, and that's one thing, you know, I think that you can give, you know, the Trump administration uh, a, a lot of grief about deficit spending, even the, the, the tariffs and some of the, 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 the um, international trade stuff. And, 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 and I, and I, I kind of agree with that. Um, but I think on the regulation side, the deregulation, removing those obstacles out of people's way was, was really important of, of unleashing economic growth. And instead, as soon as the Biden administration came in, you know, they closed down the Keystone XL pipeline. They've had one regulatory situation, new regulation after another to where the American Action Forum, you know, they put together these costs of regulation over time. And it's over three hundred billion dollars just in new regulation since the Biden administration came in, which was what, you know, way more than what the Trump administration was, was basically flat. Um, and then the, even more than the Obama administration 
Um, and, and so this is a substantial cost in addition to the, the hiking of, of taxes, the higher interest rates because of the inflationary pressure that are out there. And, and as you all were discussing, I mean, we've got some major problems on the fiscal side of things just to fund the interest, the net interest on the debt of about trillion dollars a year, um, more than national de- spending on national defense. We've got an expected two trillion dollars a year on deficits um, over the next decade. I mean, how do we pay for this? And if and if we're going to have higher interest rates, which we we have now with the Fed raising their overnight lending rate between banks, their federal funds rate to five point five percent this week, um, a lot of the debt is going to be rolling over, and it's going to be rolling over into these higher interest rates, which means these payments are going to go up at an even faster rate. Which, as EJ and you were talking about, we do need that faster growth. This this growth that was purported for GDP in the first quarter of 2020, or sorry, second quarter of 2023, of 2.4%. Um, EJ laid it out there well about you know here are the different components. But one of the other things that I look at is just private GDP. Subtract out government spending because government spending <laughs> is is a, is, a uh, is crowding out the the economy. Right, we have to tax in order to get that money or deficits, which are just future taxes. Um, if you subtract out that 0.45 percentage point contribution, you're left with 1.95%. Um, and if you look at real average GDP um, and G- gross domestic income, you know, we've, we've, we've been negative. We've been declining uh, three out of the last five quarters. Um, and, if, and so I think that this, this economic period of stagnation, stagnation, or possibly recession is what I've said it as, uh, really got started early 2022, probably around March of 2022 is when you started to see a lot of these indicators um, really showing some warning signs. Um, you know, even the residential part of GDP, that contribution has been declining now for, I think it was what, nine quarters since early 2021. Um, so there, there are a lot of things that are shining to me saying, you know what, this is not a good economy. Uh, we've got a lot of warning signs on consumers as they're not able to their real wages have been falling and declining for such a long period of time. And, and I don't I don't see the bright light. I'm an optimistic economist. Those things don't oftentimes go together. <laughs> and uh, and and I talk a lot about this on my Let People Prosper show, which is a podcast you can find on your major outlets um, where I bring on a lot of guests. And, and 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 it's it's interesting because more and more of the guests that I'm getting on. They're having difficulty trying to determine what what's optimistic about the future. Um, Michael Munger, for example, maybe some of you may know him. I mean, I, I asked him this question, and and he was basically like, "I, I don't know. I, I I'm pretty pessimistic, <laughs> given what we've talked about today. Given the supply side of the economy, there doesn't look to be um, much relief coming. And and in the Federal Reserve, I mean, when you look at the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Report that came out today." Um, if you exclude food and energy, which we all buy, but if you exclude it, because that's what the Fed likes to look at, it's up 4.1% year over year, which is more than double their average target rate of 2%. So I think they've got a lot more work to do. It's not just the interest rate. They've really got to start bringing down their balance sheet, which is down 7% you know, year over year, but, but it's still more than two times what it was before the pandemic at about $8.2 trillion dollars. Um, and so we, we've got some major problems um, overall, and binomics is not helping. It's, it's hurting. Well, when you mentioned that the, the private GDP is actually down, can you just reiterate what you said there? And that, that seems to me the kind of thing that economists should be showing us, the unseen. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. so it's not down. It's just growing slower than what's being reported. So the 2.4% increase 
in real GDP um, for the second quarter was including everything, right? And if you exclude out the government portion, that contribution was 0.5 percentage points. So 2.4 minus 0.45, you get 1.95% increase was just the private economy. Um, and and I, do, I think that's what we, we need to be looking at. Well, so you, you had an article on Daily Caller a couple of days ago, and, and I'm going to yep. I'll link to it on my Twitter after the show. People want to look at it. It's, it's called is Biden, Inflation is Down, Is Bidenomics Responsible Not So Fast? And you mentioned a, a poll from Monmouth University that only one in four Americans believe the country's headed in the right direction. You think that was largely econ or was it broader than that? I, I think a lot of it's econ. Um, I know Mike Palix over at uh, ATR, he put out, he, he showed this nice um, poll that was done here recently saying, hey, what are people concerned about? And, and as we, we would guess, it's the economy. It's the economy, stupid, right? <laughs> uh, and, and, and inflation is up there. Uh, I think people are concerned about their, their jobs. Um, and, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of this over the last couple of years has been propped up, not only from the government spending but from a lot of the checks that were sent out to people early on during the pandemic um, and even later on during the Biden administration, um, the unemployment benefits that were plussed up where they were getting like $600 a week plus what the state was giving them, um, the savings increased to 33%. Uh, and now that's coming back down as people are going through a lot more of their savings. But what happens now that Medicaid and a lot of these emergency um, declarations from COVID and everything else have now been repealed. And a lot of these states are going back to their normal eligibility criteria for welfare programs like Medicaid, SNAP, and TANF. And many people who have been on these programs who otherwise would not have been under normal eligibility criteria, which we should have went to normal a long time ago, they're, they're not going to get those anymore. And, and if that happens, hopefully people will go back into the labor force. But we're going to have a big problem, Jeff. I mean, Many people have been without a job for like three years now, and that is a huge gap on their resume, on their CV. Um, and, and in economics, we know that if it's just a couple months off on your resume, that reduces productivity. What happens now with three years or, or what happens with the learning loss from all the schools? I mean, these, these are some major problems that are not being addressed. They're just being addressed by more spending um, and, and deficit spending and everything else that are going to come home to roost. Well, I want to get into some specific questions um, that just for everyone and get Ben and David in. But let me let me just ask David to, to come in on this. Where do you see the economy? And and I mean, can Biden really win? He, he won the midterm elections when the economy was bad. You know, maybe Americans have just gotten so tribal. You know, the Republicans are MAGA. Uh, I'm, you know, pro-life or pro-choice or whatever it might be that that it isn't just the economy stupid that that people are just dug in and they're voting on culture war lines yeah i'm not sure about uh how this will play into the election although the economy is like uh, allegedly it is the issue right um however uh you know right now if you look at polls biden is only he's beating where trump was at the same time in in trump's term you know the June of the third, June or July of the third year, he's, he's beating him by like 1%. And that's with, you know, Biden maintaining his kind of like media, protective media apparatus. But when I think about this, I think that, you know, big picture, you look at, uh, you go on Fred, you look at um, 
basically the purchasing power of the dollar. And, you know, you can use CPI, might not be the best measure. But if you look at that over the past few years, it's declined about 17%. That's a pretty, that's, you know, it's a wicked robbery that's basically taken place. And the the stimulus that people were sent in checks and, and all of that, it doesn't make up for that. And then on top of that, you know, Bidenomics, he kind of introduces this trickle down straw man, and then he claims he's restoring the American dream through industrial policy. But real earnings are down 3.16%. And another thing, two, there are two major factors that I think that people haven't been talking about enough that I think are really going to cause Biden some some pain uh, in terms of like, you know, shilling his his message. And that's that uh, retail gasoline prices right now are, are reaching their highest levels since November and oil, basically oil inventories are dropping in the U.S. and worldwide. Demand is rising. And at the same time, the Biden administration is, is basically trying to kill fossil fuels in the U.S. They've been raising royalties on oil companies to like pay production from from public lands and, and all sorts of regulations that are really depressing oil production and then at the same time you know like the price of oil is rising and guess what the biden administration can't drain the strategic petroleum reserves again so i think that that is that's definitely an inflationary pressure that is going to cause people some pain and then on top of that the student loan the payment shock of student loans that's coming in the fall i think that a lot of people yeah so there there are just so many things that i think are going to cause people economic pain and it's going to be even harder for Biden to kind of shill this, this message. And I, I really liked in June, the wall street journal editorial board had this piece about Biden economics and they, they closed it with who are you going to believe mirror your own eyes regarding Bidenomics? Americans should believe their own eyes. I think that's really where I, I kind of stand on this. Well, let's get back to oil real quick. My favorite uh, perma bear Peter Schiff was on, I can't recall, I saw him the other night, and he was talking about how he thought a lot of the reduction in um, CPI was due to oil prices falling uh, pretty rapidly over the past quarter. But now they're, they, you know, they kind of bottomed out and they're creeping back up and they've gotten, I think they hit, I think a, a crude barrel hit 80 uh, in the last couple of days. Um, you know, how, how does, uh, you know, do do Democrats understand that oil flows through every part of the economy? And when you go buy a toothbrush at the store, you know, a, a, a truck brought it. Do they even get this? I don't think so. And, and I think that they've gotten around this to some extent with that, like, uh, that super core measure. Um, and, and I think that, like, it, it's just, uh, it's, it's very, um, it's a dubious way for them to sidestep reality, basically. Uh, but it does, it affects real people. Uh, it's like energy still matters. So yeah, that's that probably worries me more than any of the left cultural projects is the Green New Deal, the climate change stuff, because there you get into true religiosity. Um, we're we're not, not talking about you know we're talking about global boiling now, not just global warming. Um, and, and there you get into the you know the energy is wealth. It, it's it, it's literally a, for, a form of wealth and the idea that we're going to deny it to ourselves or to developing countries even worse in some ways uh, is not just grossly hypocritical, but it's really scary because if you read Alex Epstein's book, 
the fossil future, you'll know that, that some of these projections are just absolute pie in the sky. I mean, the idea that we're going to have enough uh, renewables or alternative energy sources to replace coal, natural gas and oil in the near future, in the near term, 20, 30, 40 years is just preposterously false. And, and worse of all, um, since Fukushima, of course, virtually no new nuclear plants have come online. Uh, one in Georgia and the U.S. sort of came online at an existing site, but it's it's been bogged down in some regulatory issues. And, you know, Europe, has, with the exception of the French, has largely starting to shutter its nuclear power plants. So I don't know. Um, I don't know if the if the world has caught on to how truly insane and impoverishing uh, that that program would be. So, um, you know, I, I'm. I'm long oil on my pathetic little E-Trade account. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, Jeff. Yeah. Um, EJ might want to talk about, he had a good chart showing the production of oil just kind of flatlining for a while. Uh, so I, I'll let him take that. But I think that um, I, recently, just a couple months ago, I testified before the House Ways and Means Committee about the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, and all the green energy garbage that was in there. And, you know, they sold that whole inflation reduction, which is just, it's pretty, it's pretty laughable that they called it that. Um, but they said that it was going to reduce the deficit and everything else because of these ridiculous um, estimates that they put on a lot of these variables. But now whenever new numbers are, or new information's coming in, um, some of the regulations that were put in place on the data by treasury of what could be used and what can't be used under the different um, types of money that was going out for EV subsidies and the batteries and everything else, instead of being about a $300 billion, it was closer to $1 trillion, if not $1.2 trillion, <laughs> almost four times as high as what they were initially uh, expecting or estimating. And, and that just goes to show that it, it, it's all a scam. I mean, they, they really are just trying to throw as much money as possible and expecting different results. And, and for something that you know, that they're not going to have much of an effect on if, if at all. Anyway, it's your point just a minute ago. Um, and it's yet it's running up the deficit and it's causing more harm for the overall economy. But I don't know if EJ might have something to say about the oil price or oil, oil production. Sure. Thanks, Vance. Um, th there's a couple of things going on here, I think, with with the oil markets, one of which is the crazy reporting uh, from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, which a lot of people have, have been very skeptical about um, for over a year now. And it, it turns out they were right. The, the numbers being reported were way off. And, and there have been some really crazy revisions that show that demand is actually way higher than we thought. Supply is lower than we thought. And therefore, we are seeing big drops in inventory. And that, that is why all of a sudden we're seeing oil and gas prices start to go up in, in recent days. Uh, in, in terms of production, though, which, which Vance was mentioning, I mean, production was was just like a rocket ship during the Trump years. It was it was going up at a very dramatic pace. Uh, we cracked 13 million barrels before the pandemic. That's barrels uh, per day. And what happened, obviously, during the pandemic was that plummeted. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we had the opportunity to refill the strategic petroleum reserve when the price of oil literally was negative. Speculators would have paid the government to take oil. And unfortunately, the Democrats in Congress uh, blocked that. Um, whatever the case, though, under Biden, 
uh, he has decided to, in, instead of you know, replacing the reserve, he has decided to uh, continue drawing it down, which has been very detrimental. And now we risk you know, getting caught with our pants down, essentially, where the price is going up past the point where Biden promised he would refill the reserve, right, when it hit a certain dollar amount. And now what's happening is we're going to have to eventually refill it at an even higher price. So paper hands Joe Biden over there is is uh, uh, buying high and selling low, as it were. But production essentially increased throughout most of 21 under Biden, albeit at a, at a slower rate than it was going up under Trump. Uh, but it has it has basically now flatlined. Last last uh, week's number was literally the exact same as the first week of the year. So we are we are perfectly flat for the year at this point. And we're somewhere about 800,000 barrels a day below our pre-pandemic production level. And I mean, if you want to try to extrapolate out the pre-pandemic trend, then we are way below trend, you know, let alone just uh, just the level. So unfortunately, that's just an entirely self-inflicted wound uh, you know, from the Biden administration here. And, and we are really having to pay for it now. And all of the people who say, oh, you know, in, inflation is done and prices are going to continue coming down. I don't think any of them have factored en- the energy markets into this at all. Well, I'm sure most people are familiar. If you know the Dallas-Fort Worth area, if you know Southern California, all the way from you know, Santa Barbara to San Diego to the Inland Empire, and, and you go back to those aforementioned Ford F-150s, I, I mean, if gas becomes four, five, six, seven dollars, and of course it, it had become that high in California and some other places with taxes, um, what that means for the average family is just totally unsustainable. I, I mean, um, and I'm not sure that the price of oil or the price of a lot of things have been baked in. I mean, I'd like to ask um, any of our panelists to just to chime in on this. I mean, I, I think equities and bonds currently are priced in with the idea that inflation's falling and that interest rates are going to fall as well. And I'm not so sure that those two things are necessarily true. So I'd like I'll, I'll elicit comments. No, I, I think that's that's definitely right, Jeff. Uh, I think there's way too many market participants right now pricing in uh, in in not just uh, pauses but rate cuts, and so they they it definitely seems like the market believes that inflation and the rate hikes have run their course and that things are going to be reversing soon. But but again, I just don't see what in the data uh, is making the case for that. And I, I you know by no means am I you know I know you mentioned Peter Schiff as a uh, as a um, a permable, I, I by no means am that, but I am very very bullish right now. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I think that yeah, there's if you look at PE ratios, they're they're really high, historically high right now uh, in the stock market. You saw that 13 days in a row, the highest in 1987. We also remember what else happened in 1987 with the big crash. Um, if it, if it would have went 14 days, it would have been the, the most days in a row going up for the Dow. Uh, since 1897. <laughs> um, and so it, it did go down yesterday. So I kind of stopped that streak. But but we'll see how it goes. And I agree. I don't I don't see how Chairman Powell is is going to be able to not raise interest rates. And um, I think even the Fed is anticipating that the interest rate is going to go up to six percent, um, their overnight lending rate. 
uh, a target by the end of the year. And we're at 5.5%. So that indicates to me maybe 25, two 25 basis point increases by the end of the year. Uh, and maybe that's where it peaks. But 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 one thing that, that I should just note, you know, and going back to Milton Friedman and others is that we, we can't just look at the interest rate. We, we've got to look at their balance sheet. And, and, and even though the balance sheet is coming down, you know, 7% year over year, um, and some of that's long-term treasuries. If you go to the Cleveland Fed and look at their easing, the credit easing chart, you could see where it's broken down. So some of that's the long-term treasuries. Some of that's the mortgage-backed uh, uh, mortgage securities and agency debt. But, but it's still highly bloated. I mean, there's tons of liquidity that's out there in the marketplace. Uh, and financial conditions are, are still pretty easy. <laughs> they're, they're not really tightening. And so when you look at all those factors, I've got to think that inflationary pressures are going to be with us for a while. And they're going to have, a, a, they're going to have a, a hard time to get control over inflation um, and have a soft landing. I think this is going to be, unfortunately, a, a pretty hard landing. And even if you look at the household survey for the jobs reports, um, we've been essentially flat for several months now. I know that the non-farm looks good and there's some things there, but that doesn't account for a lot of the, the hurt, I think, that the household survey is really showing for a lot of people. So that's something else to keep an eye on. Vance, do you think the Fed understood this? Really, since the late 70s, early 80s, the Fed funds rate during that period went from something like five to nearly 18 percent under Volcker in a few short years. Uh, and, and uh, you know, during that same period, by the way, of rising interest rates, gold did quite well, I would just add. But do you but there's so much more Treasury debt now versus that period. Do you think yeah. Jerome Powell and his team fully understood how badly they would break all the banks that held all these all this treasury debt that was issued at you know two percent or something i i don't know that it was on the top of their radar <laughs> it seemed like they were trying to get in the business of wokeness versus uh doing their job unfortunately is is one thing i would say but but i do think that you know there's a different paradigm maybe now i think some of us saw this early on how this was going to be inflationary Jay and I were writing about this, you know, years ago, <laughs> um, how, you know, at first there was no inflation then it was transitory inflation and, and all this other nonsense. And it's like, no, you've got to look at what's happening with the balance sheet, what's happening to supply. Yes, there were supply shocks from the supply chain issues, but those were those were short term. But you had a lot of long term factors that were going to drive inflation higher that they just seemed way behind the curve and getting control over. And unfortunately, we're bearing the brunt. Of, of, of those costly effects. And I mean, uh, you know, I ascribe to a lot of the Austrian school of economics, right? And so I'm thinking about the malinvestments, the, um, the keeping interest rates too low for too long, the amount of money that's flooded the economy over that period of time. And so, uh, you know, we're seeing some of the boom and bust cycles, um, not only across the economy more systematically, but in individual um, asset markets, like the housing market, <laughs> um, like the stock market now, it's, it's, it's pretty high right now, um, the bond market for a while. I mean, we're seeing that in different areas, and I don't think that's going to stop until they get control of their balance sheet. And so to your point, though, Jeff, I think that is really where they're missing the ball, in my view, is if you look back to what Volcker did, yes, interest rates soared, but he was also cutting the balance sheet. <laughs> he understood that that was you know, learn the lessons from Friedman and, and others that we've got to make sure we look at the balance sheet. And I just don't think that they're willing to do that right now. Um, even after the 0809, you know, financial crisis, uh, it, it took them a while to really start drawing down their balance sheet, which I think that they should have done a lot more then. 
But then it was down to four trillion. It went up to nine trillion, and now we're at eight point two trillion. <laughs> That's a large uh, amount when we're what a twenty-two trillion dollar economy. So, so this is this is all just inflationary, which is going to wreak havoc for 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 many um, for many months and, and maybe even years to come. Yeah, and we should note that as recently as twenty eleven or twenty twelve, just a bit over a decade ago, the Fed was still maintaining the facade. James Bullard, for example said publicly that, well, you know, we intend for the Fed's balance sheet to go back to pre-crisis levels. And by pre-crisis, he meant pre-08. So that would have been like the 07 level below a trillion dollars. And that was just, I'm not going to say it's a lie. I mean, I think he may have have thought that that was possible. But I mean, looking back now, the idea of a $1 trillion Fed balance sheet is just preposterous a decade later with, 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 you know, because, you know, with, with COVID, for example. And so, um, you know, it's scary just because everything feels more weaponized than, oh, wait, the, the amount of household, personal, corporate government debt, you know, much, much higher. Uh, the amount of social and political division, much, much higher. Um, so how, how do we get through, let's say, a nasty recession, which I think, you know, 2008 certainly qualifies as uh, in today's social and cultural milieu is is an interesting story in and of itself that I think economists should be touching on. But um, I wanted to wanted to, to uh, check in with Ben, uh, my uh, colleague at Monetary Metals, and see if he's got any particular questions or thoughts. Yeah, Jeff, thanks so much. So a lot of the points that the guests have been pointing out, which is that you know all else equal, the economy has some things going on, but y- you got to hold things all else equal, right? And the fact that our debt has gone up just incredible amounts. I mean, we are now nearing $32 trillion. We've now joined uh, Japan and Venezuela in the exclusive club with our highest debt to GDP ratios in the top 12, which is obviously horrible. Uh, Djibouti in number 13 for anyone who cares. Um, but the interest expense on the debt is nearing a trillion dollars. We're, we're kind of heading towards a zombie economy where the interest expense on the debt is higher than the revenue the economy can be making in taxes, which is just clearly not okay. I mean, even if the stock market stayed in the exact position that it was, unemployment stayed in the exact position that it was, and you know, real wages stayed the same as they were, which they obviously have not. There's lots of turmoil, lots of risk, obviously, uh, the yield curve inversion showing that as well. But I mean, holding all of those things the same, the fact that our debt has just skyrocketed exponentially into the 32 trillion range is is just unimaginable so maybe i'd ask the the guests here our expert panel starting with david let's say you have one minute you get to ask the president biden or uh, the press secretary a question about the economy that they have to answer no sidestepping no i'll get back to you later um david what what would you ask them and and what do you want to know Uh about the economy and their plans oh that's a good question i would I would ask, I think one thing stepping back to energy is I think that we saw basically Obama, Obama basically tried to do what Biden is doing now with this like green, you know, air quotes investment into all sorts of solar, you know, solar federal loan guarantees and all that stuff. And then after his term, it basically all went bust and taxpayers were left on the hook for like for billions of dollars of, of basically failed programs. And now as part of Bidenomics, Biden is saying, you know, in the next 20 years, farmers are going to be providing 95% of 
sustainable airline fuel and, and all sorts of questions. And I guess I would ask, uh, how, how does the administration know, uh, you know, what, what should, what's a good investment? And, uh, you know, how, how is what they're doing any different from what Obama did? Because we all saw that that didn't really work. Vance, I want to take it your way. Let's say at a minute, you've got President Biden there. Maybe they've uh, given him his, his drug cocktail to make sure that he's all clear and, and awake. Uh, he's, he's incredibly mentally focused. And you get a minute to ask him, what are you asking him about the economy? Yeah, uh, well, uh, first, good luck uh, keeping him awake. Uh, but <laughs> what I would ask is, what do you plan to do next? American people are suffering all across the country, regardless of what your Council of Economic Advisors and National Economic Council and yourself are reporting. Um, there, there's a lot of weaknesses across the economy, and people are feeling that every day. How do you plan to address that? And, and a big part of that is your increase in government spending and high taxes and high regulations. Um, and Bidenomics has essentially failed. So what are you going to do next? It, it, that, that, that's what I would want to ask him. EJ, you have the president in front of you. He's got his mint chip ice cream. You get to ask him a question. What are you asking him? What do we need to do to get you to resign? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I mean, genuinely, I, I, I don't know if there's if there's any fixing things with these people uh, in, in office. And it's not because they're a Democrat. We've had plenty of horrible uh, re Republicans. Right. I mean, actually, one of my favorite uh, uh, presidents was a Democrat, Grover Cleveland, because he, he saved the gold standard more than once. So I, I, I just I, I'm fearful that until we have a change in leadership, we're not going to see any changes in what matters. We're not going to see any changes in the policies that are affecting, actually not affecting, destroying uh, so many Americans' lives. So I, I, the, the, most, um, the most important piece of information I could glean from anyone in the White House right now, I think, uh, would be a playbook for how to get them out of office and replace them with someone better, which is probably a really long list. Well, I would add to that that democracy is a big part of the problem here. Democracy doesn't work. We know it doesn't work in a mass scale of 330 million people. And, and these politicians are reflections of us, not necessarily the folks on this call, but in the sense that um, democracy rewards uh, high time preference. It rewards politicians who kick the can down the road, who don't deal with structural problems like entitlement and debt and deficits. Uh, it encourages... Uh, politicians to buy votes now at the expense of voters tomorrow. And sometimes that's so far off. In, in the 1930s, when they passed the Social Security Act, I mean, you know, it, who, they, they, well, maybe they knew, but they probably couldn't have known that it would be you know, 80, 90 years hence that Social Security would be inverted in terms of workers paying into retirees, and it would cause huge uh, entitlement, the fiscal gap that we're facing in the U.S. today. But at the time, of course, they said, well, we, we can't have little, you know, we can't have widows dying in the streets. And so Social Security was a popular program when enacted. So we have, you know, we have, we have mechanical and structural issues with our economy, but we also have mechanical and structural issues with our politics. And I think the dollar is so far gone and that just the whole federal budget process just the whole federal political process. I think Washington is so irretrievably broken uh, that we really need to be thinking at the state and local level 
about how uh, you know a state might protect itself by having gold reserves, by have by by allowing Bitcoin to be used, by um, you know creating an alternative currency. Uh, you know, states states uh, already have internal governments and processes. A lot of states have a huge amount of foreign trade. Uh, uh, so th you know, the idea that we have to look to Washington for answers or elect the right guy or gal. Uh, at this point, I think it's just too late. I think we're behind the curve fiscally and in terms of our monetary policy. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that uh, to be Debbie Downer, but I think realism is, is required. Uh, so I'd like to get comments on that. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll start there. And, and one thing that I've been trying to get out there as much as possible is that, you know, free market capitalism is the best path to let people prosper. Uh, we, we could talk about all this other stuff, but we've got to get back to free market capitalism, um, none of this crony corporatism, none of the socialism, and, and get back to where, and this has been a long time ago now, but get back to where the government is the last resort, not the first resort. In too many cases now, the first place that people want to look is government. There's a natural disaster. Okay, government, how much is the federal government going to send to Texas or to other states? Um, there's, there's this poverty issue. How much money can we send to this group as universal basic income or whatever else that it may be? And as long as we have this mentality and this discussion happening on so many areas of our lives, it's going to be very difficult to cut spending like the way we need to do or to even control the growth of spending. You know, if we had just had um, government spending at the federal level grow by population plus inflation, which I, you know, could be too much, but let's just say that is a, is a good metric over the last 20 years, instead of adding $19 trillion to the national debt, we, we would have added just $500 billion to the national debt. That's a $18.5 trillion swing from the positive direction for taxpayers that I think we should be looking at. And so we need more rules. We need rules on the Fed if we're going to keep the Fed. I'd love to end the Fed. Um, and I think we should, but it, it needs monetary rules. And we also need fiscal rules of spending limits because these folks aren't angels and they, um, they have incentives in place to get reelected by giving more handouts along the way and running up deficits. And so we need to put some sort of framework in place that's going to have institutional you know, constraints on them. Otherwise, uh, we're on a path to disaster. So I think that those are some of the key things that I would look for. Yeah, Vince, what, what you said reminded me in, in a way of a, a tweet that Per Byland had the other day where I think he, did, he nails it. And, and he said, to, to want to make a difference in society, yet not in a way that can earn you profits, really means you want to change things for others without asking for their approval. And I think that, that speaks a lot to this kind of like decline in entrepreneurship. Everybody wants to be like an activist and an organizer, like whatever, and, and to like change things by screaming at people and posting it online. But there's been a decline of, of you know, entrepreneurs. And that's that those are the that's the backbone of any, you know, productive society. And, um, you know, it's hard, harder to do that if uh, with a, a broken money. But um, I think that that is is going to be ultimately what uh you know if if we can make it out of this at a at a more individual level it, it'll be through through people becoming more entrepreneurial or or able to to become more entrepreneurial yeah i think that's a great point i think that's um saving oneself but also it is a lot harder with broken money um that that's unquestionably true 
I, I saw uh, our, you know, our friend um, Peter St. Ange, also at Heritage with EJ. He had an interesting tweet the other day. I think he was retweeting someone, excuse me. But um, <laughs> so basically, we can't imagine a world where prices don't rise all the time. It's, you know, none of us are old enough to even have, have lived in that, um, it, you know. But Peter brought up that, you know, Campbell's Soup was the same price for 75 years, basically from 1895 until 1970. Campbell's Soup was 10 to 12 cents per can. And then I, I dug up an old story that I was familiar with from a few years ago. You know, a Coca-Cola, a bottle of Coke, they used to have those sideways machines that had like a claw thing and you put your money in and it came out. I remember those from an old time barbershop when I was a kid. And so, you know, a bottle of Coke was a nickel for 50 years. <laughs> I mean, people can't even imagine this from the 1880s until 1953. And there's this story, I don't know if it's embellished, but there's this story that the Coke... The Coca-Cola people went to the Treasury and ultimately even went to Eisenhower himself in the 50s and begged them to make a seven and a half cent coin so that with one coin, you know, they, they finally had to increase the price and they didn't want to go from a nickel to a dime. So they wanted to go to seven and a half cents and they wanted a particular coin. So you only needed one coin to get a Coke. And I guess ultimately, or obviously, you know, in hindsight, they were turned down. But I mean, these are just incredible stories. And, you know, our, our grandparents, not so much our parents, but our grandparents and great-grandparents, they could get ahead through simple thrift. It was, I'm not saying easy. They worked very, very hard. But simply by saving more than they spent and having a, you know, compounding interest on very simple savings vehicles, you know, at their local bank, a, you know, a CD, a, a savings account – just through simple thrift, you know, they could put away enough to be okay in retirement. And maybe our expectations have shifted. I can certainly speak to my grandparents. You know, when they retired, they did not expect to be jet-setting through Europe and, you know, having a fancy car and living like a lot of baby boomers live now. I mean, a astonishing number of baby boomers still have six-bedroom houses and all kinds of stuff uh, in their retirement years. And, and my grandparents were, you know, they were sort of like, well, let's uh, have some aforementioned Campbell soup and watch the ball game. So their expectations of their lifestyle were that it would be diminished when they didn't have active income any longer. But nonetheless, I mean, we've created a situation here uh, where not only is savings for chumps when the real rate of inflation, not what they admit to, but the real rate is probably well above what you can get in any simple savings vehicle, even a, a, a money market fund. Uh, and then on top of that, look at housing. I mean, I have a couple of teenagers. I certainly want them to launch in life. I want young people like my colleague Ben to have an opportunity uh, to, to buy a house. And, you know, we have the, the median price is 25% above, you know, pre-COVID. We have 8% mortgages on 30-year fixed mortgages. Um, in, in my old uh, hometown of Anaheim, California, there are dangerous parts of town which are gang infested now, they call it, they call it anacrime uh, in some parts, you know, where a 1940s rambler, uh, maybe 12, 1400 square feet, uh, a basic house in a not great area is seven, $800,000. <laughs> uh, 
you know, how, how are young people supposed to, uh, you know, start life and, and build families in Anaheim, California, where a, a rambler in a gang neighborhood is seven or $800,000. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but uh, I want to give EJ the last word and then we'll wrap it up. I, I think the issue on home ownership that you're that you're bringing up is a very very real one. Uh, if you look at the monthly mortgage payment on a median priced home today, uh, it has virtually doubled. It's up about ninety eight percent since Biden took office. That's going to cost you an extra twelve grand a year for the same house, right? Three hundred over three hundred sixty thousand dollars over the life of that mortgage. Again for the same house. And I think a key thing that has has made all of this government uh, spending, borrowing, and printing of money, going back to what we originally said with, with Bidenomics, what has made that all possible uh, has been a movement in this country away from the republic nature and towards the uh, Towards, towards a pure democracy, towards a democrat nature. I don't mean that in terms of the political party, right? I mean in terms of a, of a pure democracy. Andrew Jackson did a lot of good for this country in killing the bank, uh, the second bank of the United States. He did a lot of harm to the country, though, in fundamentally changing the character of the presidency towards something that was a popular appeal uh, to the people. We, we went down the same wrong-headed route, uh, it, for example, when we switched senators from being elected by the state legislature to having the same constituency that the House of, um, uh, uh, that the House of Representatives has. So I, I think, and, and the way this is all connected, in my opinion, is that things like inflation are wealth transfers, right? It's not a generation of wealth, it's a transfer of wealth. And when 51% of the people can vote to transfer wealth from the other 49 you are in trouble as a society. And, and unfortunately, I, I think that's where, where we are at today. And I think that's why Bidenomics is not economically successful, but thus far it has been pretty politically successful. Well, we, we try to wrap it up in an hour. Uh, just want to thank everybody for joining. Be sure to follow uh, Vance and EJ and David and Ben on Twitter. Uh, good to see my friends from uh, the uh, Rothbard Institute listening in. Uh, we're always here at 2 Eastern on Fridays with uh, another, another Twitter space, usually more focused on monetary policy, monetary issues. But today, we just couldn't help but take a few pokes at uh, the Biden administration and their feckless economic policy. So we thank everybody for joining us. Uh, come back every Friday at 2 and uh, have a great weekend.